Welcome to the Deadline Podcast, our weekly roundup of the greatest obituaries from the Telegraph. I'm Harry DeKettville. This week it's the good, the bad, and the dead as we bid adios amigo to Eli Wallach. There's tally ho and goodbye to Josephine Pullen Thompson, Pony Club novelist par excellence, and we also discuss the greatest sportsman you've never heard of. As well, in tribute, we pay to Felix Dennis, publisher of the week, so we're going to cobble together a few bits of other people's podcasts and hope to make a fortune. Aha, phew, that's the giggle and laugh of Christopher House. Christopher, hello, how are you? Hello, yes, well, pretty well. I had dinner outdoors uh, a couple of days ago mm-hmm. with this lovely summer weather. Beautiful. But it got about 10 o'clock at night, it got a bit chilly. But that's... Do you do that? Yeah, I do, but, uh, but you know, you'd expect it to get chilly at 10 o'clock, no? Possibly, yes. Um, but anyway, not, not so many insects around. Good. Excellent. Well, after that startling introduction to this uh, to this week's podcast, we're going to move on to Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach, many people I don't think, Christopher, will recognise an Eli Wallach film simply because one doesn't have a perfectly clear picture of what he looks like because he was so good at inhabiting the roles in which he played. He was that method actor par excellence, probably best known for playing a Mexican bandit in The Magnificent Seven and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. But he had a 60-year career and hundreds of roles, but apart from those two, I think people would struggle to name them. Yes, uh, it's from uh, it's from The Magnificent Seven that I remember him, really. Mm, I suppose and moustaches. Yes, I'm not sure he was entirely convincing there, but how could you be? It's such a big uh, sort of part, and uh, he might as well just have arrived as a samurai with horns on his helmet. Um, Absolutely, uh, I, I think he could have done that very well. He was uh, born the only Jewish family in Brooklyn, surrounded by uh, Italian-American families, and I suppose it's some irony that he also became famous for playing Italians and, and indeed, crooks. There's a, a, a line in our... Um, Obit when he said, I wanted to play a crook, so he listened into the Senate Commission inquiry into mafia dealings in America, and then he told the projectionist to stop because he grew up next to the guy who was uh, being quizzed by the Senate. So there you go. That's very good. It is a good deal. Do you think he learned from his youth then how to uh, adopt various guises? I think he did. I think, you know, we do lots of obits of people who grew up in New York. Uh, pre- and post-war, and you had to scrabble, I think, if you were very poor in in sort of 1920s and 30s uh, New York, and lots of actors came up that way. So I think it is interesting. Also, of course, he was just that age where, just post-war, he became part of the method, uh, you know, the actor's studio and the whole method acting uh, fad, alongside people like Marlon Brando. Except with Marlon Brando... You went to see Marlon Brando, didn't you, despite the method? I mean, it was clearly him doing it. Yes, I suppose you think it was Marlon despite the method. Where with Eli, it was very much Eli with the method. In fact, he said that he found films hard because it was so much harder to sustain the method process over yes. 10 weeks of filming as opposed to a 90-minute play or something. Can't do you much good either, I'd have thought. I don't think so. He said uh, he was a great fan of, of stage work. In fact, he preferred it. He said that 10 weeks in the saddle in Spain would pay for him to come back and do something worthwhile on stage in New York. And he know? went on and on, playing an old man at the age of, what, 93 or something? Exactly, exactly. He was 98 when he died. He's one of those people who... You think, oh gosh, he's still alive. It's you know, it's not a shock when he's died. It's a shock that he's still alive. I find it more and more difficult to remember who's alive and who's dead. I know. Well, Kirk Douglas, I'm afraid, is the name that keeps popping up in connection with that. People are saying, is Kirk Douglas really alive? And he is still going on at a huge age. Michael Douglas's father. Good for him. Good for him. Spartacus. 
That's right. That's his famous role. Anyway, um, <laughs> Vian wrote in to say he was fabulous. This is Eli Wallach. Even in late life, he was still brilliant. In Wall Street, money never sleeps. He had maybe half a dozen lines and still absolutely steals the show. Wandering 156, a true stalwart of the golden age of Hollywood. Mr. Wallach was thrilling, chilling, nasty and alarming in the roles he played and yet could also be tender, vulnerable and endearing. There you go. These people have added their comments to your website, is that right? That's absolutely right, Christopher, absolutely right. Speaking of tender, vulnerable and endearing, or at least tender and endearing, Josephine Pullen-Thompson was the authoress of a series, or in fact, the whole genre she created of pony club novels. Have you ever read a pony club novel, Christopher? Well, now you come to mention it, I haven't read any Josephine Pullen Thompson, but I have read some books by somebody called Monica Edwards, who died uh, ten years or so ago, and she wrote pony novels. Wish for a Pony was one of them, mm. which I didn't much care for. I think principally because they were girly books, yeah, intended for but she also wrote, girls. Yes. Well, they were, yes. But she also wrote stuff about um, fishermen at Rye in Sussex, and those were far more adventurous and uh, tar-stained. And I enjoyed those much more. Well, Josephine Pullen Thompson found that she wasn't allowed to be very adventurous because her publishers were so determined to keep her shoveling out these very successful pony club books that every time she strayed off the tracks they smacked her and told her to get back on them it's a lesson to us all don't be good at too many things don't be ambitious don't try to deviate just stick to your task Uh exactly exactly stakhanovite writing from josephine pullen thompson i was wondering i mean her her heroine in um five books in the 40s and 50s was someone called noel kettering noel a girl not a boy who gains confidence in the west barsetshire pony club why is it that fictional counties are always called barsetshire christopher well, I think they could have come up with something better than that. That seems a bit slack. But among these, uh, Josephine Pullen-Thompson, there was always, you know, Henry Thornton, dashing and daring, Susan Barrington-Brown, who came from new money. And I was wondering if horses always connected with class somehow in Britain. You know, you've got the old money, riding, stables well, and the new... Yes, seems... they do eat a lot, uh, and so you would have to have some money. Or, or they live in fields, which most people don't have. Exactly. But even so, I'm not sure about that, because I think of Billy Bunter, a pretty mm. poor series on the whole, but it was set in something that was like a, a public school, which most of the readers of Billy Bunter in comic form, or indeed book form, wouldn't have known. Exactly. Well, think about Harry Potter, I mean, I mean, that's a fantasy. It's a school novel, really. It's nothing to do with wizards, really. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's all about school. But not the schools that anybody's been to. Exactly. Not anymore. No, no, no. So that's very interesting. Um, do you think that parents shoveled these novels at their nine-year-old daughters, hoping and praying that they'd grow out of their pony club passion and would never have to buy them the actual ponies in question? They go in phases, don't they? I don't know how long it lasts. It's Sometimes it's, it keeps, and that's why we keep winning gold medals in the yes, Olympics. You have to keep, eventually, some of the girls will actually get their way and get the actual pony, as opposed to just a Josephine Pullen-Thompson book. Um, so Sarah Heffernan Turner wrote in to say, "Oh, how sad to hear that Josephine Pullen Thompson has died. I loved all the books by all the Pullen Thompsons because it wasn't just Josephine, but her two sisters. She was one of three, also wrote Pony Club novels, and they were inspired by their mother, who created the Pony Club genre. So Sarah Heffernan Turner, there mourning the loss. They were part of a special part of my childhood." She writes. Deborah wrote in to say, "I loved all the books by the Pullen Thompson sisters." Not sure about just pre-adolescent either, which we described them as their main audience. I'm sure I enjoyed them into my teenage years. The great thing is that the horses don't answer back. It's not like Black Beauty. Right. They're not so anthropomorphic, are they? That's right. 
Now, Patsy Byrne, it's been a bad week or bad few weeks for Blackadder. Patsy Byrne played Nursey. She was a very um, classy and distinguished actress uh, with the RSC, notably. But Patsy Byrne, probably most famous, playing Nursey in the second series of Blackadder. That's the Elizabethan one. Christopher, do you remember seeing that? Well, I've got a bit of an allergy, I'm afraid, to Blackadder. It did get better as it went on. Yes, I think it did. That's what the BBC thought. They were going to cancel it, actually, after the first series. And it was only because Rowan Atkinson gave up some of the writing duties and Ben Elton took over that uh, they commissioned a second series which was the series that Nursey was in that's Patsy Byrne playing Nursey Nursey to Queen Elizabeth of course um, that the whole thing continued and perhaps Ben Elton was ready writing some of the kind of sex obsessed lines that uh, Nursey was famous for do you remember she had this memorable duo with uh, Rick Mayle playing Lord Flashheart Christopher Yes, I mean, I've seen some of the clips of Rick Mayo playing Lord Fleshheart, which, I mean, he is very much, look at me, look at me. Mm, mm. And whereas um, Nursey was a character actress, and you don't really see her, you see the character she's playing, That's I think. That's very right. That's very true. Anyway, um, Patsy Byrne there, she's died in close proximity to Rick Mayo, so we just want on the obituary's desk, Rowan Atkinson, please take care, um, because we know that Rowan has an extraordinary passion for extremely fast, uh, sleek and rather phallic-shaped cars, but he's not always brilliant at keeping them on the road. So, um, Rowan, do take care when you get behind the wheel. How about trying something sensible like a Skoda? Um, Now, Johnny Leach, the sportsman. I told you at the top of the show, everyone, that we'd uh, mention the greatest sportsman you never heard of. Well, his name is Johnny Leach, and I bet you haven't heard of him. But just post-war, he was really one of the most, if not the most admired British sportsman of that era. But what sport was he playing, you might ask? Well, he was playing what Boris Johnson calls whiff-waff, table tennis. Turns out to be true. Johnny Leach, he won his first world title in 1949 in Stockholm and became a household name. I mean, he really was every bit as successful as Bradley Wiggins or or Andy Murray. I mean, he was that kind of stature in his day. He was... uh, Promoting, he's promoted on programs like Blue Peter, and he contributed a weekly column to the News of the World. Hard to imagine a, a weekly tennis t- table tennis column in a newspaper now. I suppose it's hard to imagine the News of the World now as well. But then we'll well probably draw a veil over that. I it's hope been, so. Buzzard wrote in to say one of those largely forgotten, unassuming people who should have, at the very least, been elevated to OBE. A sort of nice decorative distinction there by uh, Buzzard. That's a bit more than an MBE. Hardly companion of honour, then. Now, before letters, moustache news, our weekly roundup of all the armed forces veterans whose obits we've carried in the paper this week. Firstly, I think we should mention Morris Rowe. He was an SOE agent who found himself billeted in a chateau alongside a German officer at the end of the war. Morris Rowe was... um, was also a Jedburgh, one of those units, uh, three or four-man teams, largely three-man teams, who were parachuted in just before and around D-Day to stir up and foment revolution, really, against the mm. Nazi occupation in France to take the heat off the invasion forces on the Normandy beachhead. Um, what was so good about uh, the Maurice Rowe obit was that it revealed an incredibly delicate balance of... Real politique going on in uh, Wasi, where he took, uh, he was given shelter by the mayor there, and it's fascinating. This was in a chateau. In a chateau, and it's brilliant because it shows not only 
the mayor's point of view in late 1944. This is in the autumn of 1944. So if you're a German, you're thinking things are on the turn here. If you're an Allied soldier, you're thinking, well, I'm still in occupied land, so I don't want to, really don't want to get caught. And if you're a Frenchman, you're thinking, well, this could go one of two ways, and I don't want to be, you know, had my head shaved and put up against a wall by the victors. So what happened was that uh, Morris Road was given shelter by the mayor in a place called Wassy, W-A-S-S-Y, <laughs> in sort of one wing of the chateau. In another wing of the chateau was this colonel. He was a German colonel um, who was tasked with looking after an, an aerodrome in the region. And the two men met. And Rowe had a cover story. His cover story was that he'd been bombed out of southern France. He spoke French. And he was taking shelter with the mayor, who is a chum. That was his cover story. But clearly it wasn't... Marvellous. ...very good. And the suspicion is, and this is what our military obituaries suspect, the suspicion is that everyone knew what was going on. But because it was October, September, October 1944, just decided to turn a blind eye. And the German didn't want to say... You're SOE, mate, you know, you're a Jedburgh, we'll put you up against a wall and shoot you, because he suspected in a few months' time it might be his turn. Strikingly good story. In fact, if you put it in a play, people might think it's a bit artificial. A bit Nevertheless, like, yes. it would make a good play, it wouldn't would, it? wouldn't it? Yes, I was thinking that. It's very good. Um, the family had a prominent German... It's covering their backs was the, uh, was the phrase used by our military obituarist. So, amazing. Maybe the colonel had his suspicions, he said, but with the war almost, almost lost, he went along with the, the arrangement. Amazing, amazing. It must have been tense, though. It must have been uncomfortable and tense. Breakfast must have been yeah. really uh, Exactly. Pass the salt. Here, old chap. <laughs> I mean, ici, le sel. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, Simon Coulter wrote... And I think a very brave man, by yeah, the way. Of course, of course. I mean, um, it almost goes without saying. Well, I did say it, as we all feel. As we all feel. Simon Coulter wrote in to say, the number of these wonderful stories we have yet to read is dwindling, to which a marvellously titled um, commentator thank you for writing in Big Vern said I know I love reading about these chaps but I hate the fact that they have passed on they're last living witnesses to the greatest events of the 20th century and now making their final onward journey truly an amazing generation well I think those, those things are, are true of course a truly an amazing generation but I I disagree with Simon Coulter that the number of these wonderful stories we have yet to read is dwindling inevitably World War II veterans are dying now at a, at a rate and, and we will live to see hopefully the, the last of them go just as we did with World War I veterans but the thing is what we forget is that heroism and these heroic military tales moved swiftly on after World War II and the British Armed Forces were almost endlessly in harness almost immediately after the Second World War you think of Korea mm. to Aden, Suez, Indonesia conflict after conflict and the career of Lieutenant Colonel Dennis O'Leary, whose obituary we also carried this week, is testament to that because he was four times decorated, MC and Bar and two other decorations. His first MC was in 1944, but he got his second MC, his Bar to the MC, uh, fighting in Burma against Dacoits, and he led an assault up a river in Sarawak. So marvelous! Um, I like Dacoits. They never, they never sound very reliable, do they? It's the name that does it. I know. It's um. It's a caste. For those who don't know, I'm sure all our listeners are, know exactly what Dakots are, but Dakots are a caste, uh, an Indian caste who, and as in India, there are castes who largely 
content themselves with leatherwork or tapestry, you know, needlework or, you know, a certain professions. Dacoits, their professions is brigandry, I think. Ah, yes. I, there used to be somebody in Soho whose nickname was Brian the Burglar. And uh-huh. naturally, it sort of puts the finger on you. The police are looking around for... Who's <laughs> done it. who done it. Yeah. Well, Brian often got a visit. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Not Willie the alcoholic, but Brian the Burglar. Derek so, the Dacoit. Derek the Dacoit. Well, there they go. He, um, Lieutenant Colonel Dennis O'Leary, was fighting the Dacoits and was decorated for doing so. His career took him up from, as I say, the end of the Second World War right up into the mid-60s, and he was decorated several times. So Simon Coulter, fear perhaps not too much that we will never be reading these uh, military tales soon because, for better or worse, the British armed forces were involved in many acts of heroism again and again, even after the Second World War. Right, that's moustache news. Now, Christopher, here with the letters. Well, there's quite a bit about healthy or indeed unhealthy subjects in the letters that you wrote to us this week. It so happened that Professor Susan Jebb, the government's chief obesity advisor, had said that in the battle against obesity and the sugar that contributes to it, parents should ban all drinks but water from the dinner table. Well, Robin Whiting uh, of Castle Rising in Norfolk. You know Castle Rising, Harry? I think I've been there, there, but tell me more about it. Refresh my memory. Well, there's a castle there. Is it rising? (laughs) Well, no, it seems to be crumbling a bit, but there's still quite a lot left. Okay, good. And there's a few houses round it. It used to be a rotten borough. Walpole, the Prime Minister, used to sit for it Mm -hmm. and uh, was elected by a couple of sheep. But... (laughs) There's also other charming almshouses there. Trinity Hospital. There... They were built by the Earl of Northampton, the previous Earl of Northampton, about 1610, 1614, okay. something like that. And there are three of these almshouses in a triangle in England. One of them's at Greenwich, just next to the power station. Very nice little th- thing. Anyway, one of the few people who lives there is Robin Whiting, and he wrote us a letter about children's, children's nutrition, which yes. is what we were talking about before. And he says all very well saying that parents should ban juice and sugary drinks from, from the, the table, dinner yeah. table because it's hard enough to get children to eat at the dinner table in the first place. And we all know what they do. They eat uh, Is this they're like without burgers and things. iPads and in front of the TV. Partly that, or they're, they're out entirely. And there's a meal deal, isn't there, where you get a burger and something else and, and a fizzy drink, which are full of mm. sugar. Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Sending them mad. Anyway... But sugar is the new thing, isn't it, Christopher? Because you, you know, it's the uh, new enemy. It used, it used to be, to be Germany, now it's sugar. Yeah, <laughs> it used to be Germany, now it's sugar. There you go. Uh, drinking fountains are part of the answer, according to Professor John R. Ashton, who is president of the Faculty of Public Health. We'll so you ought to know. Soon, Christopher. Well, uh, I hope not. No, but the Victorians were very good at building drinking fountains, partly to stop people getting cholera, and um, it seemed a kindness to give people clean water and you just press the button and out it comes. But Professor Ashton was pointing out that the um, availability of these things has diminished since the privatisation of water, in his opinion, and he thinks it would be a good idea for the water companies use some of their money funding the restoration of drinking fountains. People would love to have those beautiful drinking fountains back in service, wouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, they, I mean, even when they do work, they tend to be sort of rather algae-ridden, don't mm. they, a bit slimy. So I, I'd like to see that, yes. Yes. 
Okay, good. Anyway, well, it's well, not up to me. That's a campaign for the Telegraph, surely. Re- bring back our drinking fountains. Bring back our drinking fountains. And what about smoking on stage? Well, Dr. Brian Pike of Ferrum in Hampshire said that he attended a recent production of Pressure, a play at the Minerva Theatre in Chichester. The setting was in the days leading up to D-Day in 1944, and smoking was rife amongst the characters. Now, Dr Pike said that the use of real cigarettes caused observable distress among members of the audience, and he's very much against it. Mm. So next day, a reader, Bruce Chalmers of Goring-by-Sea in West Sussex, wrote in saying... My wife and I also saw this excellent production, and apart from one member of the audience in the front row who appeared to be asleep, we observed no distress whatsoever. Uh, Bruce Chalmers thought that the cigarettes used in the, uh, the role of the actor Malcolm Sinclair as Dwight Eisenhower were the verbal, not verbal, yeah. that's a verbal yeah. mistake, were of a herbal variety which contained no nicotine or tobacco. That's true. There are acting cigarettes that you can light up and uh, my wife takes to the stage occasionally and yes. there are um, special cigarettes that you can buy. Oh, is that so? Well, it so seems I'm... rather a, a swizz, really. You yeah. think they have a nice cigarette and cheer them yeah, up. Yeah, cheer them up. I have to say, Christopher, in my youthful days, um, I was in a Vita, that musical, when I was a child, and I'm oh, astonished yeah. that this goes on, this debate, because even, I mean, that was 30 years ago now, and the theatre production, the whole building, they were terrified of fire. I mean, yes. absolutely petrified. There were fire, yes, yes. sand everywhere, yeah, fire like extinguishers, yes. and so I had to carry a candle as a sort of playing a choir boy or something in, the, in this production, yes. and the candle was not... Lit. It was a uh, battery uh, powered and no. everything. There were characters, even Shay in that uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. Mm. He has a cigar, obviously. Oh, yes. His cigar was well, battery powered. Yeah, exactly. Well, because theatres are we terrified, want just terrified. Well, no, fire. I can see their point of view limits of free but speech. I'm surprised. You're not supposed I'm just... to shout fire in a theatre, are you? But uh, no. unless there is a fire, I suppose. No, but it's just because they're old wooden buildings, basically. And, you know, mm. I'm just surprised that. Um, it still, it still goes on, really, given that there are alternatives and how paranoid people were about fire when I was doing. But it I don't think the, the opposition to cigarettes isn't from people who don't want us all to burn to death, but from people who think it's a bad example. And so it really did interest the readers. And Cliff Green right. from Portsmouth wrote in, saying that he'd seen the play Pressure at Chichester too, and he said that the story depicted events 70 years ago. Smoking was entirely appropriate. What next? Would Dr. Pike like to cut the scene where whiskey was taken? I had no idea that this was the debate. I just thought it was, uh, you know, they didn't like to be fumigated. But they're actually saying that the behaviour is bad and so it shouldn't be on stage. Are we going to? That's what some people say. You know, yeah. Cutting Hamlet and also now the passive smoking. If, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, exactly. So there were some other subjects this week, notably the uh, choice of uh, Jean Claude Juncker mm. as the president of the European Commission. Mm. He now, a thing or two about smoking and drinking, I hear. Readers interested in this subject were very interested indeed. Uh, George Brown from Manchester wrote in to ask why David Cameron was putting so much effort into trying to prevent Mr Juncker becoming president of the European Commission because he thought it didn't really matter who got the job. The job description will remain the same, more EU integration. Uh, Something called Lord Leach of Fairford, who used to be known as Rodney Leach, uh, was a banker, I think, but now he's chairman of a pressure group called Open Europe. And he thought that Mr Juncker's appointment would be a bitter blow 
to the pro-European cause in Britain, bolstering the outists uh, line, the people who want us to leave, the outist line that the EU is unreformable. I think that's probably true. I should think if you're if you want Britain to leave the EU, you're probably jumping up and down with celebration and joy. Uh, uh, back, they have little Juncker. badges saying "Back Juncker." Yeah, they, I yeah. think so. Well, go. we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's, it's so people who like um, politics rather than tennis as a spectator sport are having a lovely time this week. Absolutely. Well, there was an anniversary in the past week of the assassination at Sarajevo, uh, which set off the First World War. Uh, John Shrive of Holt in Norfolk wrote in about the car which the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in, and it's exhibited in the Museum of Military History in Vienna. Yeah. Now, what uh, struck him is that the number plate on the car is A111118, which happens to be the date of the armistice ending the First World War. That's extraordinary. Well, that much had been noted by our columnist Charles Moore uh, in his diary in The Spectator. Mr Shrive asked, is it known whether this is one of the most extraordinary coincidences in history or merely a number plate added after the event? It so happens that John Shrive has been a regular contributor to the letters page over a number of years, and this is his last letter. For I heard the sad news that he had been involved in a motor accident and then had died. So I hope, as tribute to him, somebody will answer the question that he raises. Well, that is a fine tribute, and um, we offer our best wishes at this sad time to John Shrive's friends and family. Now, part two, and a brief look at the life of Felix Dennis, the hedonistic publisher behind Oz magazine and The Week, who dreamed of being a great poet. But he found his true forte, really, was making money. He couldn't stop making the stuff. <laughs> um, it's, it's extraordinary, Felix Dennis, because he made hundreds of millions of pounds, Christopher, and it's not exactly an era when th- publishing has always been thriving, but... He could turn his hand to anything and make it work. Um, well, it just beats me. I just don't know how people do it. But he had the knack. He had the knack. I went to see him, actually, and interview him once. Um, and he said to me, it's extraordinary, he was, he was very, very interested in forests and forestry. He loved English forestry. So he said, I started investing, buying up huge swathes of forestry. And as he did so... Forestry became an asset class which appreciated more than anything else in Britain. And so he just became hugely more wealthy because he was doing a good thing and, a, you know, acquiring But I think forestry. he must have been the only person who did because I've known a couple of people who were advised by their accountant to buy some woodland. And they did so and they didn't make any money at all out of it. Perhaps they chopped at the wrong time. I think it's probably that he was so rich that he'd never had to sell so he could just keep things and then when they had appreciated he could sell. He was never but his forced. career started off in a very strange way. In Oz magazine, of course, he was a serial expellee. Like so many talented people, he thought school was um, an utter waste of time, really, and he had a real problem with authority. So I think he was expelled four times. And, uh, and then he got involved with that very anti-establishment magazine, Oz, just pitched up. This is a real um, sort of tip for any would-be job applicant. About When he was 20, he sent a, a taped message to the publisher of Oz magazine saying, this is the best effing magazine I've ever read. It's brilliant, brilliant. And then he pitched up unannounced at the office. This is probably, I shouldn't tell people to pitch up unannounced at the Telegraph offices. But this is what Felix Dennis did at Oz magazine. And he was simply given a bucket and a lot of copies of Oz magazine told to go and sell them on the King's Road, mm. which he said was just so easy because it was absolutely right for the time. And he couldn't stop making money there. So he would come trudge back to Oz's offices with buckets filled Full with cash. Money, yeah. Yeah. And he didn't really it. stop after that. Um, interesting chap. But, uh, of course, Oz magazine got into trouble. 
uh, with, uh, for, was, uh, the obscenity trial, famously uh, depicting the school kids issue in which Rupert the Bear was depicted doing very un-Rupert the Bear-like things with other characters. And, uh, and, and they, it was Judge Argyle, wasn't it? It was Judge was Argyle, exactly. Is he still with us? I don't know. I don't think he is. No. I don't think he is. Um, and indeed, it's funny because Judge Argyle was um, the one, Felix Dennis was effectively acquitted. I mean, he was sentenced to a very much shorter term than the other uh, defendants because the judge said that Felix Dennis was very much intellectually inferior to the other <laughs> defendants. And this really cheesed Felix Dennis yeah. off. And I think that that was a crucial moment. He, in fact, he said as much in his life. He was always determined to prove that actually he had quite a bit about him. And gosh, did he prove it over the next um, next few decades. In fact... Felix Dennis got his own back in uh, on, on Judge Argyle because Judge Argyle wrote a piece in The Spectator saying that Felix Dennis had been, I think, the Oz magazine had peddling drugs to youngsters and things like this, mm. which was libelous, and Felix Dennis won his case handsomely against Judge Argyle. In fact, he took The Spectator to court, not the judge himself. But, oh, well, I'm but, not sure about that. But oh. yes, he turned the tables, rather, on uh, the man who had sentenced him. But I wonder about Felix Dennis because when I met him, he was... Very likeable, very outspoken, uh, very, very candid. But he was once too candid. Do you remember this story, Christopher? No, tell me. He got very drunk in an interview with Ginny Duggery from The Times. And in the course of this interview with her, he confessed to killing someone. Oh, yeah, we shouldn't do that. Uh, no. He said he pushed someone off a cliff because uh, this man was harassing a girlfriend. And um, in Connecticut, where Felix Dennis had a, a house, he took this chap up to the cliffs or lured him out there for some reason and then pushed him over. And um, then, of course, it created a great outcry and the police were asked to investigate and Felix Dennis said, oh, no, 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 I was just pissed at the time. It was all a lot of drunken hogwash. But mm. uh, I think questions did remain about whether he'd done it or not. Uh, of course, he was legally uh, cleared and the police didn't even bother to investigate. But perhaps he had oh. a, a forceful temper on him as well. He, I mean, in a way, he was a bit of a nightmare. His ideal of having fun was crack cocaine and, and girls. Mm. Yes, hookers, you may say hookers, but, you know, hookers have families too. And um, I didn't think his influence was entirely benign. In his later days, he started sending out copies of his volumes of poetry. To, he did, All yes. and sundry, and I was one of the sundry. They weren't much good. Really, yes. He did manage to shift a few copies, but I think that's largely, as he himself admitted, because he accompanied the poetry readings which he sponsored with huge quantities of very, very good wine. Yes, that, now I think all publishers should be encouraged to do that. Yes, the white wine he provided at his book launches, I think, was slightly better than the white wine you get at most book launches. Anyway, um, so I spent a very jolly afternoon in his company, but towards the end I found it rather sad because he had this huge estate in uh, outside um, Stratford-upon-Avon and obviously all the money in the world but he was very lonely and so as I potted off and said well I've got to get my train now he sort of said well you sure you won't stay for another oh. glass and and I thought it was a very odd situation. And it was know. a sad end because he was suffering from cancer wasn't it? He I had throat cancer yes. And all the marvellous wine that he'd put in his cellar, he couldn't bear to drink it because it was too acidic, yeah, acidic yes. he had to add water to it. So yes. even his careful laying down of vintage claret 
didn't yeah. do him any good. Ashes in his mouth. But no doubt that cellar, in true Felix Dennis style, will be worth an absolute fortune. No doubt. Uh, no yes. doubt. Even post-mortem, he'll be clocking up the income. Well, Felix Dennis, a brilliant businessman, perhaps a much more conflicted human being. But um, for those in publishing, as we, of course, are at The Telegraph, a very uh, astonishing figure the way he, he bestrode the, uh, the scene and constantly made money. Sad news, said David47, wrote in. I had the pleasure of knowing Felix, or as he was known Puss in the mm. 60s. He was the drummer in the same band as my brother, and I drove the van and set up and took down his drum kit as he was far too busy chatting up the girls. <laughs> Even then, he was a real character who lived life to the full. It's a rather nice story. Nakina Ace yes. wrote, I had the pleasure of spending an hour or so in the Concord Lounge at JFK with Felix a few years ago. It must have been more than a few years ago because Concord's been out of action for about two decades. But there you go. He said, uh, we were the only two smokers and drinkers that morning. That morning, that's a good... That's a good. Junker yes. would approve, yes, no doubt. Yes, might, yes. And struck up conversation. So uh, Nakina Ace still remembers that. And um, it sounds like a... You know, he clearly won friends and, and admirers wherever he went, Felix Dennis. Not the love of his life, though. Anyway, Christopher, that's enough about Felix Dennis. Has anything else struck you this week? Well, there's a very good question posed by one of our readers, Adair Anderson from Selkirk. Why do we not just redesign the Union Jack so that it is equal both ways up? Then no-one will need to complain when it's flown upside down. OK, Christopher, just remind me... Why it isn't equal? I was, uh, the union. Well, it's it's those diagonal it's the red diagonal lines. Flash red lines. Exactly, and you can you can tell that the the wide part of the white ab- above the top left hand side should be wider, um, the bit near the flagpole. I'm just making a. It's quite a complex sign flag, in the air, which it? of course goes down very well on audio. Is it correct to call it the Union Jack? I thought we were supposed to call it the Union Flag. Well, it's our style to call it the Union Flag in writing, but if you look into it, it's been called the Union Jack, even when it isn't flown as a jack, which is um, flying on part of a ship. Yes, exactly so. Um, It's been called Union Jack for as long or longer than it's been called the Union flag. So you think so, we're being slightly pedantic by not Oh, no, it? I love being pedantic, but I think people are wrong who <laughs> object to calling it the Union Jack. OK, OK. Well, there we go. We'll leave it there this week. Thank you very much, Christopher. That's it. Um, listeners, don't forget that if you have anything you'd like to add, you can contact us via Twitter on at Telegraph Orbits. I'm at Harry DeCue. You can also email us with your suggestions and comments on the deadline at telegraph.co.uk. Keep those comments coming in under our obituaries and do write in on any of those addresses. For Christopher and the Letters team, what are your contact details, Christopher? Well, if you want to write a letter to the Daily Telegraph, send it to DT Letters, all one word, DT Letters at telegraph.co.uk. And you can follow us on Twitter. Marvellous way of spending the day. Follow us on Twitter at, at Letters Desk. Yes, at Letters Desk is, is taken to, to tweeting like a duck to water, which I suppose is rather appropriate for the genre. No, Christopher is a marvellous tweeter. All the obits mentioned in today's show are on our website. Until next week, this has been The Deadline. Oh.